Are you ready to take your marketing and advertising game to the next level? Join us at Advertising Week Europe at Picture House Central in London this 16th to 18th of May. Gain unparalleled insights and inspiration from the industry's top minds and network with the biggest brands and agencies in a city known for creativity and innovation. With top industry leaders from brands like Primark, Arla Foods, Uber, and Heineken. Inspiring speakers including talent supremo Simon Cowell and fashion designer Harris Reed, as well as cutting-edge insights, this is your chance to stay ahead of the curve. From AI to brand insights to the latest in tech and everything in between, Advertising Week Europe has got you covered. Join us at Advertising Week Europe and discover why it's a must-attend event for anyone in the marketing and advertising industry at any level. Register now at advertisingweek.com slash Europe and use promo code AW25 for 25% off of your passes. Welcome to Great Minds, and today we correct a long-standing omission in the Great Minds canon, and that's the chat with our dear old friend, uh, Bob Leodice, longtime president and CEO of the Association of National Advertisers, known widely throughout the land as the ANA. So, Bob, it's great to have you here, and thanks so much for making the time. Matt, it is always a pleasure to be with you, so uh, this is great. Well... Bob and I share a lot of history and uh, we'll get to a lot of it, but this is about you, Bob, not oh. about not about our shared history. <laughs> so uh, one of the great uh, training grounds in our country for business in general is the packaged goods business. And right out of school, you started a long tenure at one of the great, great companies working in marketing, Craft uh, General Foods. And I'd love to go back and talk about those early days, the legendary training that you get in packaged goods, and sort of hear your story, Bob, how you get there. You do such a brilliant job enabling your members, the world's greatest brands, uh, to tell their stories of how they're connecting with people. But you talk very little about yourself, and you have become one of the true uh, I'll, I'll use a lot of words, Bob, but just really one of the salt of the earth guys of our business. And you're a leader. If there was a Mount Rushmore of people over the last 20 years, you'd be one of the four on it. And uh, I'd love to spend some time and just sort of hear your story and start by going back to those early days as a young Bob Leodice at Kraft General Foods back in the 70s. Well, first, thank you for your generous comments, Matt. And, and I, I do want to congratulate you on all of the success that you have brought to our industry, particularly in the last five years or so, where you've just so totally changed the game. And it's it's been an absolute delight to watch you flourish the way you have. And uh, But back to the uh, the early Bob Leides, you're going to have to shake off a few cobwebs. I'm not sure it's well known in the industry, but I actually got my start in finance. I spent uh, about seven years at, at Kraft General Foods in finance after getting my undergrad in accounting and my graduate degrees in finance. Um, and that really taught me the discipline of um, business management. Uh, General Foods was a very disciplined company and uh, they were prone to really ensure that they understood where the future was by successfully deploying 
very disciplined strategies in the present moment. And that discipline extended into the marketing arena, which um, allowed me to be able to generate uh, a bandwidth of uh, strategic challenges that uh, was just so instrumental in me learning about effective business management because finance and marketing worked extremely close together. And during those uh, interchanges, uh, we had to work hard at ensuring the health of the present business and the clarity of where businesses were going longer term. And you're right, it was a very, very effective brand management, but with an eye to ensure that we could deliver what we told shareholders we could deliver. So after seven years of finance, uh, I had the great fortune of being invited uh, to join the marketing team, which I, I thought was a two-year development assignment, which uh, turned out to be about another eight. And there I kind of learned the flip side. I learned the creative side. I learned the brand building side. I learned what agency management, agent, effective agency management was about uh, through two stints, uh, one with the, the Baker's business unit through great with gray advertising and then with the jello business um, through a YNR at that stage and those desserts division experiences uh, were tremendously exciting and tremendously invigorating because one of the great things that general foods did at that time was they really provided enough leeway for brands to develop their long-term business health plans and that was a tremendous growth experience because we, we had a very matrixed organization approach, which allowed us to be able to work directly with research and packaging and finance and, and an entire array of functions that um, uh, just gave great insight as to how businesses should be managed effectively. So let's stay with young Bob just a, a little bit longer. You get two degrees at NYU, great, great school. You have this background in strategic planning, finance. That's your foundation. Marketing comes into the picture a little bit later. The relationship with marketing and finance, probably a little bit different then than it is today. And, and we'll talk about the evolution in the age of procurement and a lot of other issues around the contemporary definition of finance as it relates to marketing. Um, uh, but it was an exciting time to be in the business. And I think people really romanticize when they talk about that era, both on the client side and the agency side. You work with some of the legendary iconic shops of that era, Gray, you mentioned Young and Rubicam, another one, some great brands, a lot of great people who have gone on to incredible accomplishment, worked in those brands, worked in those companies. Talk about some of those early remembrances and things that really help shape you become the leader that you've become over years. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And um, it, it was a still, I would say, the tail end of the Mad Men era at that stage. And um, it was where the agencies were as great agency creatives as you could get. In fact, I remember one of my almost uh, incomprehensible experiences was when I joined the marketing group, they said, okay, you have to go visit the agency to get your brand review. And I said, huh, what's that mean? What do you mean my going to the agency, my brand review? Isn't that what we do? 
They said, nope, um, the agencies were tremendous strategic stewards for the brands at that time. And I found that that was one of the legendary assets that agencies brought to the table because they had the ability to truly be objective in how they viewed the business. And they were responsible for essentially providing great direction into the general managers and then all of the senior leadership people about the way the brands were being managed presently and the types of objective changes and evolution that they saw for their respective future. And that was an exhilarating experience because this was more than strategy 101. This was really great dynamics in how to create relationships with the consumer. I mean, this was, you know, old school 101 television, radio, print, uh, marketing evolution. And you had to get at the core of it and you had to learn the accountabilities. You had to learn research and what consumers really felt about your businesses and then making uh, the very best decisions that you can on that strategic direction. So I found that the partnership with the agency community to be just absolutely wonderful and I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. Now, granted, the agency relationships have changed over that course of time, but I do believe that if there was one wish that I had today, it would be that throwback strategic connectivity that brands and agencies had at that point in time. And I, and I know to a degree still do, but it isn't as strong as, as it used to be back, way back when. And Bob, do you remember any of the particular people, mentors, folks who took you under your wing or somebody you heard speak once that really stood out? Because that was a great era for some really dynamic leaders in our industry. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm going to start on at least the craft side of the equation. And one of uh, my mentors at that stage, uh, I, although it wasn't as formal as, as a mentorship, was the president of, of then General Foods. His name was Phil Smith. And Phil really opened my eyes um, with um, essentially a welcome lunch that he had for all of the new, relatively new recruits. And remember, I was coming out of an accounting and fan, finance degree kind of stuff. So I was very much left brain thinking at that stage, very analytically focused, very data focused, number crunching, that, that kind of thing way back when. And uh, Phil did this uh, opening presentation at, uh, at the welcome lunch. And he said, um, if you were gonna be a successful business individual, then what you really need to do is to have a phenomenal appreciation for the liberal arts, liberal arts side of the world, the, the right side of the brain, the creative side of the brain. And he encouraged things that I just never would have expected. He said, go to the movies, read, read voraciously, have intellectual curiosity, try on different things that you never would have experienced before. Live life. He said, if you want to get into the minds of your consumers, then you have to appreciate how they live, the decisions that they make, and really experience them like you never experienced anything else in your life. You're not going to get that from a college, strict college education, which is a lot of great book learning. What you need to do is to go out. And for that group of people, 
he strongly encouraged that regardless of whatever function you were in, go on not only store visits, but go into people's homes, ask permission to be with the people when they're making up the products, speak with them so that you really understand them, not through research reports, but get to understand the decisions they make and the choices that may affect your businesses over the long term. And I found that to be one of the, the great pieces of learning that I had. And as part of, especially when I got to become part of marketing, one, one of the things that we did for several years in a row was to go out and do field work, go to the stores, go visit the consumers. And we had a great consumer center that used to make up products and things like that. And they would be our um, linkage to the consumers. And we've, we found some, some great things there. Uh, and so that was kind of my hero on the, um, the client side. On the agency side, my first experience uh, with, I'll call a heavyweight, was Ed Meyer of, uh, of Gray at that stage, who was a legend, who essentially led Gray to great successes over the years. And uh, he was, he seemingly was a very strong believer in the cross-discipline of, uh, of what a brand marketer should, should be about. And he really exposed me to the power of media. Uh, back, way back then, um, you know, media was kind of an afterthought. It was always about the brand creative, the commercials you made, the print ads that you made. But he made it a point to say, you know, your success as a brand marketer is as much about your media selection and your media evaluations as your choices on creative development and creative work. And again, I was quite surprised and um, it gave me an appreciation as something that wasn't really talked much about uh, because you would think it would be pretty obvious, three television networks, a couple of radio stations, you know, the seven sisters of, of publications, the magazines at that stage, which were the, uh, the grand uh, publications of that point in time. Um, and I gained a great curiosity for the media universe after hearing from him and his love affair with um, how powerful media could be and how influential it could be on, on brand performance. Two great stories. You touched on something a couple times now, and that's that notion of strategic planning and long-term thinking. Uh, today, it's very much in vogue to talk about the decreasing tenures of people. Uh, you and I are unique in one way that we have in common in that we both sort of had the same job for a long period of time. That's unusual today. Uh, the average tenure of a CMO continues to decline. It's down to, I think, less than two years now. Yeah, it's in the maybe two to three year range, yeah. Yeah, and in general, you feel like short-termism has really become a dominant trend in business. Talk about that evolution from an era when long-term strategic planning, a real discipline around brand building was the way of the world and reflect on sort of our journey to where we are now. I would argue, Bob, not necessarily for the better. Yeah, I, I, I'm not pleased at um, the tenures of various senior executives. Um, especially for a, a brand marketer, two to three years is a drop in the bucket. Um, you 
you're just getting your sea legs in how to effectively navigate the currents and eddies of, of a brand when uh, they're asking you to leave. And that's really a tragedy. Um, I think if you look at some of particularly the great agency execs of all time, and you're talking about the Burnbacks and the Burnetts uh, and the Ogilvies, I mean, they, their names were on the door and they were on the door because they held those positions for the long term. And that provided a level of constancy and evolution that um, was very, very important for the brands. Today, when you're down to a couple of years of tenure, uh, you lose the history. You don't have enough time to ingest the history of what, what got that brand to be so successful. And to get to that next platform of growth uh, is even more complicated for the CMO of today than it was of yesteryear. And, and the reason is, is because the CMO's environment has become extraordinarily complex. I, I can't imagine uh, growing up in today's environment from when I became a brand marketer because the inability to truly master the various marketing and media skills that are so required for success, it's just incredibly wide and very complex. I mean, we didn't know content marketing or influencer marketing or relationship marketing. Think about what digital and social has done to enhance the complexity. Think about the emphasis today on data, technology, measurement, et cetera. We didn't have those kinds of things to worry about then. And it just has compounded the ability or inability of a CMO to make the choiceful decisions that will lead to that level of success. Candidly, I think it's overwhelming and, and to see some great notables like a Mark Pritchard uh, or Keith Weed, who was at Unilever, um, stand the test of time for as long as that they were in their respective positions. And Mark's still the chief brand officer, Procter & Gamble. Uh, I think that they're relatively rare that you have people of the, that level of tenure in those types of positions, which are ingredients uh, to their success. Uh, the way I see Mark operate now than where he was five, seven, eight, ten years ago is different because he's evolved. He's gained appreciation for his environment that he probably didn't have in his early years as chief brand officer at, at P&G. So it's, it's fundamentally important to be able to do that, you know, especially when you, we think today that uh, much of strategy is about a great balance between short-term performance marketing and long-term brand building, which is the essence of, you know, how to be able to get the short-term returns that your CEOs and CFOs and shareholders are looking for while ensuring that the foundation for long-term business success, those foundations are appropriately strengthened. So there's a lot of complexity that's at play and it's very, very stressful for today's CMO. Great stuff, and we're going to dig a lot deeper here because uh, I can't think of anybody who has the benefit of more combination of tenure and perspective and genuine insights on, on all these complex issues. But let's keep staying with your journey just a little bit longer. So, so you have this great run at Kraft General Foods, and you then uh, elevate at a relatively young man to an SVP working in the sales world at Grupo Televisa. 
a little more than a cup of coffee, a couple years. Talk about that part of your life. I did not know that till our crack Great Minds research team uh, found that in the archives. Uh, yeah, and the, uh, the reason I went there was I had the good fortune when I uh, was at managing the baker's business of, uh, I should, excuse me, the jello business of uh, having the good fortune of Pedro Font, uh, a tremendous executive from the past, uh, be my multicultural um, agency exec at that time when I was managing Jell-O and I really learned about multicultural marketing and particularly Hispanic advertising at that stage. And he went to go work for Grupo Televisa and recruited me uh, to come there. And I had, by that point in time, I was with uh, then Kraft General Foods for 15 years. And I thought it was time for change. And um, what better place to go than the international arena where I had absolutely zero experience so yes, it was pretty much a sales job, but um, what a phenomenal experience in the two years that I was there. It was less about learning about sales because I had a peek under the tent when I was doing marketing at General Foods, but it was more about the complexities of the international world. And the big wake up call was, my goodness, all of these countries do not do marketing like they do in the US which was very naive of me at the point. I was thinking, well, if the U.S. is doing it, everybody else is kind of doing it the same way. Uh-uh, particularly in the area of, of media. And uh, what, uh, we, what we did was we created what was called then called an unwired network uh, of essentially great stations throughout Latin America in particular. And that unwired network, which was a loose arrangement to ensure that a particular marketer's um, uh, contracts were deployed across most countries within the Latin American region. And wow, did I have to learn uh, a wide array of international marketing and media practices, as well as to understand what was eff effective media management. Uh, additionally, one of the great experiences was the fact that Grupo Televisa was a produ producer of telenovelas or the equivalent of soap operas, which were distributed globally. So that's where the, the sales experience came through of taking these wonderfully produced Hispanic telenovelas and um, essentially sold them globally, particularly in Europe and Asia, uh, which got me on a couple of great international trips and experiences to meet uh, people and executives and visit countries that helped me learn about what that international environment was about. So uh, without question, that relatively small two-year experience was one of the most uh, influential learning experiences I had in my life because I never would have had that type of opportunity uh, ever, uh, especially when you're kind of uh, got your feet grounded in, in U.S. marketing. And sure, it gave you a grounding for where many of your members would go years later as you lead them as the business has completely become a global business. Yeah, that's a great point, especially, you know, when you think about the power of digital and social media, essentially it's marketing without borders because your ads and uh, your reach can be global in nature without a lot of uh, special engineering 
especially when you're working with titans like um, Google, YouTube, and Meta, uh, and TikTok, etc. It's just you know you're everywhere you really do want to be, and you don't have to worry about uh, special management working with uh, within the framework of of uh, an individual country. Great, great stuff. So from Grupo Televisa, you then land at the ANA. Right. I do not know, Bob, how you got there. Could, <laughs> could you tell us that story? And what was your first gig at the ANA? Because you did not start as president and CEO. That's correct. Very good. Well, your research is, is pretty good there. I, I will tell you this. The, the reason why I made a move was because I had to make a move. Um, during uh, my last days at Grupo Televisa in 1994, the Mexican peso collapsed and there was a, an economic crisis. Grupo Televisa was based in Mexico. Uh, so they had to do major cutbacks and I was part of that cutback. Uh, so um, while I was out on the street, I was talking to lots of headhunters. And remember back in 1995, we didn't really have a well-developed internet. Uh, there wasn't really much in the way of email. So I was sending out hard copy letters to headhunters and, and prospective marketers, et cetera. Uh, I was doing it really the old fashioned way. And so I sent a note to a specific headhunter who happened to call me a couple of days later and said, hey, I've got this great opportunity at the, uh, the ANA. And I literally said, what's the ANA? I had no idea what this was. And he said, well, it's the Marketing Trade Association. And I said, what's a trade association? I was truly clueless at that stage. Uh, but, you know, he quickly gave me uh, the perspective of what it was and what it was about. And the job actually was very inviting for me because it was to head up both their finance department as well as their marketing and membership arenas, which were all reflective of my history. Uh, fortunately, I, I passed the incoming test and uh, I got to join this relatively tiny organization that candidly at that stage didn't have much capability or financial resources. So talk about the ANA as you found it. You just tipped it much smaller uh, than any of us could imagine. But this was a really little baby in many ways when you joined it. I'll tell you a humorous story that I, I often tell. I, I was in the job my second day. And um, since I was in finance, I had this uh, person in the accounting area come into me, knock on my door, and he said, uh, uh, Bob, I, I says, I wonder if you can help me out with, with a problem that we're having. I said, sure, what, what can I do for you? And the person said, um, we're out of cash. And I went, ha, 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 ha. I said, no, really, tell me, what, what's the issue? He said, we're out of cash. And I was kind of stunned. I said, what do you mean we're out of cash? And he said, well, the, the former controller left and you know, we didn't you know, issue any invoices for dues and things, et cetera. So we're, we're kind of at rock bottom and uh, we have to make payroll. And I, I was stunned and flabbergasted, but uh, but that's how small we were. We were really tiny. We had relatively little influence. As I said, we didn't have many resources. Uh, we had a full staff of uh, only then 28 people. Uh, just by comparison, we're about 175 now. Uh, it, it was a hand to mouth. I mean, we did everything. We, we licked envelopes. Um, we, we typed things ourselves. 
uh, it was just, you know, every, all people on deck doing every imaginable chore uh, that you could possibly imagine in a small business. So for all practical purposes, we were the equivalent of a startup at that stage, even though we were probably in business, what was it, 85 or 90 years at that point in time. But uh, we had to learn how to be savvy. We had to learn to be creative and to use and appreciate every nickel and dollar that we could find. I remember waiting for the mail to come in and hoping a check would come in so that we could ensure that we had enough money to pay people. That's how small and relatively insecure we all were at that stage. Amazing story, Bob. But if there's anything that you know can be said about you, it's that you have broken the general, I won't say reputation, I'm struggling to find the right word, but in general, trade associations are viewed as not necessarily the most progressive places. <laughs> They're viewed as sleepy, you know, folks come in at nine, leave at five. Right. The energy that you have brought to the ANA, and I want to talk about your rise up the ladder uh, before we get into a lot of the contemporary issues, but you have created something that is an absolute freight train that has sustained energy that leads the industry, not only in America, but globally. That drive to shake things up, to make things happen, that comes from somewhere. Do you think it came from your folks? Did you work as a kid? There's a lot of drive and energy in Bob Leodice. Where do you think that comes from? Well, again, thank you for your generous comments. I appreciate that. Um, it, it, two things. Uh, one, you, you alluded to my upbringing. Uh, my mom was a, uh, uh, she, she pushed us. Uh, she always uh, pushed us to strive for excellence. It was do your best. I mean, it's just, that's uh, my old Italian upbringing was um, don't leave anything on the table if you can. And really uh, a push to excel and no matter what it is, whether it was in education or sports or whatever it was that you tried to do. So that was kind of instilled at an early age. What was also fundamental, particularly on the business side, were um, some core principles that I took away from my general foods experience. Um, the first had to do with um, what I often say to my staff. I said, there are th the three most important things in what ANA has to stand for are quality, quality, and quality. If you do not have a distinguished and a distinctive product and service, then you will never be able to differentiate yourself versus others. And if we're going to succeed as a company, then we have to be respected for what we bring to each and every one of our members. Because let's face it, um, a trade association is a discretionary expenditure for, uh, for any brand marketer that wants to join our association. And in order to be able to attract that company to be with us and to stay with us, we have to be relevant and we have to be of value to the, those individuals that we service. So it, we had to work hard to ensure that what we deliver to our members was something that they could use, in fact. The other thing which I brought over was um, the discipline of planning. And at the ANA, I have roughly, I would call it 20 different units. And during the months of July and August, we spend about 20 full days of planning. 
Um, we start the process about May and we have them develop their plans internally. And then we spend uh, for the better part of a day to review the essence of those plans. And what I found is that the ability for us as a trade association, remember we're nonprofit, so we don't exactly have oodles of resources to invest, is we have to rely upon the creativity and ingenuity of the staff to be able to continue to advance us to develop the products and services for today and for the future that our very complex audience, our members are gonna need. Remember, our audience is not just agencies, it's the brand marketers that come from junior marketer to CMO, from multicultural marketing, brand marketing, digital and social marketing, to essentially every industry. You mentioned packaged goods. Well, we're about travel and finance and pharmaceuticals. So we have a very, very three-dimensional audience that we have to satisfy. And it's not one size fits all. It just doesn't work that way. So it required a very disciplined process that tapped into the creativity of our staff. And we had to challenge them in unique ways that got into that level of creativity that we put behind and, and executed year after year and ensure, ensured that we knew where we were going and the distinctiveness that we were bringing to our product and service portfolio. It's such a great story. And as we sort of construct the Bob Leodice narrative, you really see how it all ties together, going back to your early days at Kraft General Foods, that initial foundation in finance and strategic planning. And I think it's fair to say those echoes can still be heard today in the halls of the ANA. They, they do, and uh, but um, we have to keep a very mindful watch on the way this industry is developing. Uh, I, let's face it, it's breathtaking to try and keep up with it. Um, I, it's, uh, it's amazing every day there's a certain level of news and information and insights about what's being created. It's warp speed. And it's important for us to, to A, at least maintain pace with the members, but where we can to stay ahead of them and to ensure that we are working for all of their respective benefits. Look, one of the, the great features about a, a trade association is that it really represents an intersection of proprietary intellectual capital from our members. Uh, we, we learn a lot, we gain a lot, we archive a lot of our intellectual capital based upon the input that we get from members from all of our services, whether it's conferences or webinars or podcasts or committee meetings or whatever. You think about the thousands of individuals that intersect with us well, they have as much to contribute to us as we contribute back to them, is we repurpose that intellectual capital for their, everybody's respective advantage. And that's why they pay dues in the ANA is we bring all of this together in a usable, accessible way to make everybody smarter. Because great marketing is about effective decision-making. And we don't call them best practices, we call them insights. Because what's best for you is, may not be best for me. So our job is essentially two things. One, to bring those great insights to our members so they have the opportunity to make the very best decisions that they can. But the other thing is that we try to do is essentially to act in a leadership role with respect to where the industry is going. Because let's face it, you know, every brand marketer is managing their own brands and their businesses. But until we bring those marketers together, unify them, 
we have no voice. It becomes very fractionated voices. And our job is to bring them together to speak on behalf of the marketers for the very best of our marketers, essentially to act in a way that is distinctive and unique so that the industry reacts to their needs. If it were not for the marketers, there would be no resources for the agencies, the media companies, the platforms, the publishers, researchers, the consultants, the vendors that are out there. They all feed off of essentially the marketers' uh, resources. So it should be about their agenda. And that's what we've been attempting to do is to make their agenda as paramount as we could in the minds of the total industry. Well, they are indeed the engine, and you, Bob, uh, arguably the master mechanic. Let's go back just further a little bit again. So you start in that role at the ANA. I assume you made payroll. uh, (laughs) We did. We didn't miss any. And rise up the ladder. Talk about that moment when the opportunity to become the president and chief executive officer landed in your lap. Yeah, it was uh, it was fascinating because it was um, it was the end of 2002. And uh, my uh, the, my predecessor uh, announced his retirement, uh, which was kind of unexpected. And um, so I, I had a great mentor and I think, you know, him well, it was Jim Sparrows, who at the time he was um, he is of AT&T fame went on to work at at Fidelity and Ernst & Young. Uh, And he at the time was vice chair of the ANA board of directors. And so I had gotten to know him well leading into uh, my predecessor's retirement announcement. And it it was done a little differently back then. He he called me up one day and said, you know, I'm probably going to do something or I want to do something which is is different and I want to be sure you're comfortable with it. And I said, what's that? He said, I'd like to try you out as CEO. I said, what? He said, yeah. He says, you know this business. I mean, you've been there seven years. You know the inner workings. You've you've reached out and you know members very well. He said, uh, why not try on the CEO job as an uninterim basis for six months and see how it goes? And so I said, yeah, I'd be open to it. I don't know if your board will, but um, I'm game. So he went and talked to the executive committee and the, uh, I guess he, they referenced the total board. They came together and said, yeah, let's, let's give the guy a shot for six months. And um, sure enough, I, I obviously passed the test because uh, they still haven't been able to get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that story. I, I, I love Jim Sparrows. What a, what a terrific guy. Is he still around? He's, well, he's not, he's not uh, practicing, but uh, he's uh, in his uh, nice little place in Cape Cod enjoying his retirement. Good for him. Terrific, terrific guy. So you take the helm, give or take, 21 years ago. The industry is very different. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg is either in high school or a freshman at Harvard. We are four years away from the iPhone. We're five years away from YouTube. Nobody's talking about data or or privacy in the way we talk about it now. Uh, Trust, certainly the definition has evolved uh, from the old definition of can you trust your advertising to a whole hornet's nest of issues around digital privacy. 
and what we are giving permission to knowingly or unknowingly uh, almost every time we pick up our, our mobile phones. Uh, looking back on that early tenure, Bob, are you absolutely amazed at where we have come and the role that technology has played in driving the business forward? Yeah, it's, uh, you, that's a, it's the, the most important question, uh, probably this whole conversation, because technology is just a massive game changer. It has been a massive game changer. And back when you were talking about the birth of Google and, you, uh, and Meta, and, uh, who would have ever thunk what, what is, has transpired? Um, it's been both a blessing and a curse. I mean, let's face it. There have been dramatic opportunities gained, but also a lot of troubles that have befallen our industry. Let's talk about the gains. Um, essentially, if I had to kind of express what data-driven and technology-driven marketing has been about is to make you smarter and faster as a marketer, to expand your reach to places you would never have expected, and to be able to uh, zero in, at least at one time, on what was considered to be a targeted audience. And that just opened up incredible vistas that um, heretofore we never would have imagined the case um, at any point in time. And so it was exciting, it was exhilarating, and watching innovation after innovation just pummel its way through at lightning speed was breathtaking. Um, and quite frankly, you didn't know what was going to happen next, but you knew that it was the cost of doing business. You had to jump in as a marketer, whether you understood what you were doing or not. You had to get in because you knew your competitor, and there were lots of competitors out there that were salivating at the opportunities that were had, had come their way. Um, you, you had to dive in, and as well as your agency community. They were as blind, as naive as the marketer at that stage, as it were drinking it, it was like drinking from a fire hose. And so we were all learning together, but we all were convinced that you, you, there was no turning back. This, this was the way to go. And you knew that it was just only going to get better until it got worse. And what got worse were things that you've already alluded to was privacy related issues. Back in 2008, 2009, we called it the behavioral targeting issue is that consumers were all of a sudden worried about what what did they know, whether it was the advertisers or the, the media or the platforms or whatever? What do they know about me? Am I safe? Am I, you know, am I revealing things that I really don't want out into the marketplace? And then came along something which kind of took our breath away, which was ad fraud. And what was ad fraud? Well, it was these crazy global technologists that somehow uh, had advanced the art and science of technology through bots. What the heck was a bot at that stage? They were these creepy crawlers that were literally siphoning off massive dollars from your account and essentially stealing 
vast sums of money from you without you even knowing about it. It's like, what? What are you talking about? I mean, it was truly incredulous what was taking place. Then there was the evolution of what I think everybody calls now the walled garden. And we'll just keep it real simple. Essentially, it brought on data transparency issues. What do you mean I can't have that information to make the very best possible decisions out there? No, no, that's mine. It's You, you can't have it. I'll give you a peek under the tent of some things or I'll help you with that, but no, that's, that's my data, not yours. Whew. How the world changed by just those three things. Privacy, fraud, data transparency, and everything related to that just was blowing up. Uh, again, some very, very positive and some not so positive. And we could, we could talk for hours about the issues and advancements that are taking place, like AI today. I mean, my goodness, how many times have you heard ChatGBT in the last three months? It's probably bouncing around your brain. Obviously, a great opportunity, but people have called it scary, and who knows what it's going to do. So all of that is, is absolutely breathtaking. And as I said before, it has opened up the spigot for a great international pursuit if, if you want your brand to be evolving into different places. Um, but again, we're not turning back the clock. It's incumbent upon a trade association like ours, the 4As, the IEB, the VAB, and others um, to ensure the integrity to the very best that we can of the products and services that are brought forward. So the playing field is as level as it possibly can be. Is it right now? No, definitely not. It's still very, very uneven. Are we rallying the forces that I just mentioned and others? Yes, we're trying to do better because there's still way too much opacity that's out there that is preventing marketers from optimizing it. And I'll, I'll share with you something which drives the ANA today. So think about the decade from 2010 to 2020. So think about the level of digital transformation that took place. I remember preparing for a conference, my opening remarks for a conference in the digital and social realm. And I was preparing my remarks and I had this notion to ask myself, is any of this stuff really working? Well, I, it was hard to kind of get a global answer. So I used a surrogate. I used the Fortune 500 and I looked at their overall growth rate from 2010 to 2020. And the average revenue growth of that incredible set of companies is 2.8%, which candidly, you didn't have to revolutionize the digital and social landscape to get 2.8%. So what gives? That's why the ANA is on its mission to drive business and brand growth. That is our mission. And it's incumbent that we use all of these incredible tools that are now available to us 
to optimize the decisions so that we can enhance that level of growth. Each one percentage point of revenue growth is equivalent to about $500 billion of incremental sales. That's the reason why we do what we do. Absolutely great story and so well told. And, and Bob, your challenge, as you said, is not only to stay current with where things are, but to stay ahead, to help lead your members. Uh, that's a pretty tough challenge. To do that, you've grown the organization tremendously. Your annual master's event in fall is the singular must attend for marketers over the years. Talk about that journey. You've got to be pretty proud. I know you, you don't uh, take a breath, uh, but if you were to look back at the last 20 some odd years, there's a lot to be proud of, Bob. Um, thank you. And, and by the way, the Advertising Week is also one of the singular must attend events that we, we can't forget about. Here and around the world, my, my friend, uh, of an expansion-minded individual. Um, yeah, I think um, we have a lot to be proud of. Uh, we've learned a lot along the way. And the most important thing, as I said at one point, was the need to continue to stay ahead of our marketers. And you have to do that by going back to Phil Smith and, and in my very first couple of weeks at General Foods is stay curious, open your eyes, let the outside in. And when you do, you recognize that you um, have to, you have to change or die. If you don't evolve and you don't listen to the signals out there and, and, and be bold to take those leaps ahead, you're not going to go anywhere. Uh, you're going to stay old school. You're going to stay stuck in the mud, uh, in the sludge. Uh, and we have to do that. That's just the way we, uh, that is, that is our DNA. And that's the reason why I go to as many of our own conferences and listen to as much of our podcasts and attend our webinars and just try to be as current as we possibly can to listen to all of that and to work through that, those planning exercises to my team that, have even a closer look on some of those things in particular to listen to what's important and to ensure who are the leaders, who are the people we should be talking to, not just among the marketer community, but to talk to agencies and platforms and media companies and really help understand uh, what drives business and industry today and where consumers go. And that's where it begins and ends is with consumers and customers. If we're not attuned to what their needs and aspirations are, we're never going to be able to do that. So it's a confluence of a lot of things. But you're right. It does take a lot of energy and a lot of work. Um, and you have to push in order to be able to do the things that are necessary to be of relevance and value to a very, very demanding set of marketer members. It's so well told. I love how you wound it back to... Uh, to Phil Smith. So we're going to have to do a part two. There's so many other topics I wanted to get into. But but Bob, just as we wrap for today, we're going to call this Bob Leodis One. You've seen so many great keynoters on your stage. The annual Masters stage has really become the Yankee Stadium for our industry. 
Is there one in particular, as you reflect back on all those years of great, great CMO keynoters and other guests, is there one or two that really say, boy, I, I remember personally seeing some of the uh, stuff that Jim Stengel used to do on your stage, uh, but is there one or two that really come to mind that you remember most fondly? Um, yeah, it goes back a little bit. I mean, let's, let's face it, the, what Mark Pritchard does on stage just about every year is, is remarkable. And I'm always impressed by what he does. And several of our board members who have graced the stage over the years clearly open the eyes of, of many that are in the audience. But um, I very fondly remember uh, a great presentation by Larry Light, who was a consultant for many, many years and did one of the most remarkable things was he went from consultant to becoming the chief marketing officer for McDonald's. And um, he, you know, he, he created the I'm loving it campaign uh, way back when, but um, Larry, I believe it was 2006, uh, accepted the invitation to be the opening speaker for what was I'm not even sure we called it the Masters of Marketing then, but it was our annual conference. And um, he broke down marketing in its most simplistic fashion. And what he pretty much told us is to stay true to the fundamentals. There are lots of things that you can do, but when you reach directly into the hearts and minds of the consumers, and you deliver a simple, memorable message that has and presents the foundation for great brand loyalty, short and long term. And he created the I'm loving it with the jingle that associated itself at that time and was foundational to McDonald's marketing for many, many years. But he brought his consultant's hat to the table and spoke in the most quiet of tones. You know, there was absolutely no video. There were no PowerPoint slides. He stood in the middle of the stage for 30 minutes and gave one of the most eloquent, eloquent dissertations on how to be a great brand marketer that I've ever heard. And it has stuck with me ever since. And I, I really am thrilled that I had that incredible opportunity to have him be the opening keynote for the masters. You know, I, I, as you tell the story, I remember that one and I think you picked a great one and I love this conversation, Bob. I learned a ton. Uh, we will do a part two cause I want to get into issues and your take on things like the, uh, separation and sort of re-aggregation of media and creative. I know you have great perspective on that and so many other topics, but an absolute joy. I, I thank you for sharing some of your family with us. We were lucky enough to have uh, your sons, Tom and Greg, as part of our Advertising Week family over the years. And I love getting to know your family and Carol over the years as well. And you're an absolute jewel of a guy. And you've always been very supportive of what we've tried to do. And you and I have talked about it, but I remember our conversation in front of the Chrysler building right after the 2004, the first one. The inaugural. That's right. And you challenged me and, you know, there's got to be a why and there's got to be, 
you know, and I took that very much to heart and that I think that we're both here all these years later probably surprises both of us. Well, it does, but uh, our friendship uh, doesn't surprise me. It's uh, It was created with its foundation. You and I met eye to eye and we've we've always been on the same page. And I think that that is essentially the underpinning of what great relationships are all about. Great. Well, this was a joy. We'll do it again soon. Thank you, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.